Well, last week we um, have witnessed the greatest plot in all of human history. The Son of God was betrayed by one of his closest companions. It would have been on the front cover of all mainstream media, on the first page of Jerusalem Herald Sun, with a big font, shocking news. Judas the Apostle has delivered Yeshua al-Mashiach for 30 pieces of silver. It would have flooded the social media of the first century. It was in everyone's post uh, and people would have been texting each other. Have you heard? Has it been told to you? Did you know? Did you know what? Judas Iscariot is a false convert. What? No way. Yes way. But he followed Jesus. He was involved in street ministry. Yes, he has weaknesses, but who doesn't? What went wrong? And can we imagine how rattled the apostles would have been when they found out that Judas was a false convert? I mean, can we picture the shocking faces they would have had? That would have been stunned. It was jaw-dropping. They would have asked themselves, how did he manage to pull a cover over our heads? How did we not know it all along? And they would have had a flashback, thinking of events. Judas, he ate with us. He fellowshiped with us. We spoke about theology together. We sang spiritual songs together. We fed the multitudes together. When we rode the boat in order to cross the sea, we were going to die together. We, we witnessed the supernatural power of Jesus together. We laughed together. We fought together. How was he any different from us? And what would have been the most petrifying thing? Is when they were led to ask themselves this question. If it turned out that Judas was a false convert, if he was never regenerated, he was never saved in the first place, and now he perished, and what makes us think our destiny is any different from his? And their eyeballs would have popped out of their sockets. Their hearts would have sunk to their feet. Terror would have gripped their hearts. What was it that distinguished the genuine apostles from the false one? Have you thought about that before? Well, last week we covered four misconceptions that people falsely rest their assurance of their salvation upon. Let me run through them very quickly. Number one, holy affections. We need to understand something. No matter how many times we say that we love Jesus or that we're humble or we have the fruit of the Spirit, 
for every holy affection there in a satanic factory deep in the depth of hell there are those counterfeit imitations humility there is false humility gentleness there is timidity or niceness joy there is happiness love there is self-love zeal there is anger leadership there is control they're all there First misconception. Second misconception we covered that all Christian duties can be accomplished by false converts. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, giving money to the poor, studying great theology, being a church member, all of these and many, many more things can be accomplished by false converts. Number three, there's a very high chance that there are false converts in our midst. Let us not kid ourselves. Number four, you can stay in your garage as long as you like. It will never turn you into a car. In other words, there is no expiry date for a false convert. Well, this was last week's message and I would really strongly encourage you to listen to it if you um, have not yet. This week, what we're going to do is that we're going to answer this vital question. What is it that sets apart a genuine believer from a false convert? This is it. Right? This is the answer that we've been waiting for. I want to put down this fire that has been burning in your heart for the last week. Right? What is it that sets us apart or those who are genuine from false converts? I want to tell you that Jesus forewarned the apostles and us time and time again. Repeatedly, he pressed hard with his index finger on that one thing that the devil cannot fabricate. The one thing that demonic imitation factory cannot replicate. Goats cannot counterfeit. Crows cannot fake. What is it? Let me put you out of your misery. It is spiritual growth. Growth. Spiritual growth is the line on the sand drawn. Ever increasing in fruitfulness is that spiritual screen that filters true from false conversion. It is our greatest evidence against the, the devilish doubt. The exhibit. The proof that we have against our prosecutor that always charges us, puts a charge against um, our salvation. Let's see quickly how Jesus himself attests to this Amazing truth. You remember the parable tears and the wheat? How did the reapers distinguish the, the wheat from the tears? How did they know? You know what Jesus says? This is Matthew 13, 30. Allow both to what? To grow. To grow. Together. Until the harvest. 
And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. How did they know? What made it easy for them to figure out? It's growth. Please do turn with me to Mark 4. Mark chapter 4 and verse 8. And we want to look at some other parables that Jesus spoke clearly against false conversion versus true conversion. You remember the parable of the sower of the, and the soil, right? Four grounds. How many out of them were false converts? Three. And it was only the last one that was the genuine ground. What was it that set apart the genuine ground from the bad ones? We'll have a look at Verse 8, and please note how many times the, that language that spoke um, directly and indirectly in relation to growth. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they what? Grew up and increased. They yielded. See, grew up, increased, yielded. A crop produced what? 30, 60, and 100. Have a look, verse 26, parable of the seed. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed, and at night he gets up by day, and the seed what? Sprouts and grows. How himself does not know. The soil what? Produces crops by itself. Then he starts. The manner of growth. First the blade, then the head, then master grain in the head. Again, have a look. The parable of the mustard seed, verse 30, says, How shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, what does it do? It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms. What? Large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under under its shade. And these but samples in a necessity of our growth in order to authenticate our true conversion. What is Jesus saying here? Our spiritual growth. To grow deeper roots, taller trunks, bigger leaves, more fruit, is to know that you truly belong to him. It means if there is no growth, there is death. Dead people don't grow. Zombies, zombies are what you see is what you get, right? But if there is growth in you, hallelujah, brothers. If there is life in you, it means that there is supernatural strength and vitality in you. If there is growth in you, be of good cheer because salvation has come into your house. That is what Jesus is saying. To be saved is by grace. But to be sure that you're saved is by growth. 
to be saved is through faith. But to be sure that you are saved, it is through fruit, not faith. Fruitfulness in your life. Let me give you an example. Suppose that we have a, a baby among us as we, as we do. Okay. And we praise God for babies, right? Even when they drool in themselves, when a baby cries and sobs because he wants to be carried, we expect that. He's a baby, right? In fact, not only do we expect that, you find moms and, and ladies run and, and, and try to carry the baby, right? People at the back, yeah? Samuel, yeah? That's what we like to do, right? And we have a smile on our faces. Oh, he wants to be carried. Let me carry him. Yes, Mella? Okay, good. But what happens eight years later? If this baby still drools in himself and still sobs and cries because he wants to be carried, what do we do? Right? We, we become concerned. We say, Samuel, you better check your boy out. Get him checked out. Right? Well, in the same way, Jesus is saying here, the best way for you to know that there is blood running through your spiritual vein, that there is pulse in your neck, the best way is for you to know, to make sure that there is growth in you. Are we growing? Are we growing? Each one must answer this question in his own heart. Beloved, we must not give a deaf ear to this vital question of today. Are you the same today as when you have claimed to have been when you first were born again? Or are you growing? Now, growth in what? What do we mean by growth? Let us be very practical here. I want to leave you in this room walking out confused or make it such a abstract enough for false converts to take this card and say, well, okay, I'm growing. So what does it really mean that we are growing? Does it mean that we're growing and memorizing the scripture? That's well, nice. As nice as it is, as good as it is. No, no, no. What does it mean? Do we grab a systematic theology book? The thickest book that could ever find written in ancient English language that anybody could hear and go through it and just digest this thing and I say I'm growing. I do that a lot, but that's not what it means. That's not the growth that we're talking about. You know why? Because even false converts can do these brothers and sisters and they can do much more than that. But it's be courageous and ask the real question what does it mean to grow here's my outline for today you ready all right all this was just an introduction now is the real deal ready here's the growth three things they're not separate they're not or in fact they're not even and they are to do with this then this then this not or, not and, then, out of, as a result of, therefore, okay? First, 
in our love for Christ the head. We grow in our love for Christ the head. Two, by growing in our love for the church, the body. Three, through growth in our service to one another. This is my beloved, what I believe after studying so many books and going through scripture, what I believe to be the test that crowns all tests that ensures that you are saved. This is, if you like, Thor's hammer that crushes the doubts of the devil. What is it that distinguishes the true conversion from the false ones? It is not our love for Jesus, even False teachers are so deceived to claim that they love Jesus and they say with tears rolling out of their eyes. No. Are you growing in your love for Jesus? Are you growing? Now think, think with me. Let's start with this. What is the greatest commandment? Let me read it to you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment that none of us would ever say that we have attained. Then if we are going to grow, guess where growth is going to begin? If there is any increase, if there is any fruitfulness in our Christian life, it begins with this, to grow in our love for God. This is why 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2, it says, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, what is this milk? What is this milk that as newborn babies you long for? Verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the law. Or ESV puts it better. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. False converts. They don't have the new heart. Right? Meaning they're unregenerate. So they don't have spiritual taste buds. We need to understand this. So even if they claim that they love God, they're quite content with their counterfeit kind of love. They're really not eager to, to love God more. And, and the only two reasons that you could ever think of that, that might possibly they come out and they claim that they want to love God more, either because they want to impress people around them with their counterfeit kind of holiness. So they have to say this. Or the other reason is that when they doubt their salvation that they claim that they have, when they don't have it, so in their anxiety, they say, oh, what do I have to do? Oh, I've got to long to love God more. And they do that only insofar as then to attain false confidence that they are saved. And when they do, and when their anxiety settles, then what happens? They're stale. They become stagnant. That's it. They've got the assurance in their pocket. 
Why do I need to pursue to love God more? No, I don't need to. And they say all nonsense. Oh, I'm backslidden. Oh, I feel like something's wrong with me. And they stay like that for years until another time when they doubt their salvation. And guess what happens? Cycle continues. And then they go and they work themselves up and they say, oh, I've got to love God more. Why? So that I can I make sure that I'm saved. And what happens after that? They return back to their vomit. There is nothing internally in them that really compels them to pursue God further. But those who are born from above, brothers, in their new nature, there is this unsettled longing for God. And the more they long for Christ, the more they long to long for Christ. And just like infants that we spoke about earlier, how they love the milk of the mothers. And when they drink it, they crave for more of the same thing. So is every true believer. They read in the scripture. And as Jesus says, for example, in John 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. And so what do they do? The true believer, again, what what does he do? He begins to taste Christ's satisfaction. And because Jesus does satisfy all those that come to him, the new taste buds are aroused. And the believer cries for more. More of what? To love Christ more. To enjoy him more. Then he takes a look at himself. And he realizes that his own lust for sin is what is really hindering him from longing for Jesus. Stopping him from loving Jesus more. So what does he do? He begins to hate his sin. And the more he hates his sin, the more he longs to hate his sin. And the more he mourns over his lustful desires, the more he desires to mourn over his lustful desires. He's broken over the fact as to why he's not broken enough. Over his sin. And he can identify with Paul when he says, Oh wretched man. True converts. They have this hunger for their love. To love their Savior more. Not so much hunger to know that they are loved by the Savior, but they have this inner craving to love the Savior more. I identify with Paul, with Paul when he said in Philippians 3.12, let me read it to you, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but what does he do? Here is again a language of growth, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Again, continuing on, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Again, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because a true convert 
Because he loves, he enjoys loving Christ. And he knows that there is infinitely more supply of who Jesus is, that he is craving to love him more. So he grows frustrated as why he's not loving Christ enough. He's so eager to long to love Jesus more, to live for him more, to rejoice over him more, to serve Christ more. If you think about it, it's like a gravitational pull of the earth. The longer you fall, the faster you fall. So is the heart of the yearning believer for Christ. It's like the when you light up firewood, the more flames in the fire, the more it burns. And the more it burns, the hotter the fire becomes. So is this appetite that God has given to every true believer towards Jesus Christ. He's so aching to be more intimate with Christ. He wants to see Jesus more of his own companion. He's not satisfied that when he hears Jesus, Lord, he wants to enjoy what, it, what that means. He wants to have Jesus as more of a greater savior. No matter the height of the spiritual delight he attained, or even if he is sure that he is saved, he's never satisfied. He's eager for more. Is this you? Is this you? Does your heart yearn for more of Christ? Are you frustrated that you don't yearn enough for him? That you don't long enough for him? If yes, praise God. Why? Because you're showing evidence that you're truly born again. But wait, there is more. <clears throat> How do I really know? That I'm growing in my love for Jesus. How do I really, really know? Don't ever underestimate the deceitfulness of that wicked heart that we were born with. How do you know that you're not really lying to yourself? That you are really growing? Here's the second point. By growing in your love for the body of Christ, the church. The fingerprint of the new nature that cannot be counterfeited by false converts is the growth in love towards the body of Christ. The scripture tells us that the unregenerate heart is so deceitful. And so you can get these that claim to be Christians and floating around with no real love for Christians. The lone rangers. They live in, in their own little islands. They, they claim that they are growing in a love for God. But how do you really know that? How do you really know that your old heart is not deceiving you? Now please turn with me to Second Th Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3. Second Thess, one three, and it says, "Now, I'm answering a question. Do you want to be sure you're growing in your love for Christ ahead? Let me give you the quick answer before we look at the text. Have a look. Are you growing in your love for Jesus' body? Verse three. Paul says, "We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren." 
as is only fitting. Now, Paul, pause right there. Paul, how did you know that these were true brethren? They're not false ones. How did you tell that they're not pretending to be brethren when they're, when they, when they're false converts? Continuing, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another, what? Grows ever greater. Grows ever greater. Colossians 1.4, Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. He draws a circle and he says, Your love for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, where's it says here, love for all the saints. I get this, but it doesn't speak about increasing love. You haven't, let's continue reading. Which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit, increasing. Even as it has been doing in you also. Well, how long has it been increasing? Since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Since they were saved. They were growing. They were growing in their love for, for the saints. John 15. <clears throat> and in verse 2. I know John 15 is last month is Jean's favorite passage. Yeah, brother. John 15, let's read it in context. Now I'm going to read verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now what does that mean? Everyone that claims to belong to me, and then he's not bearing fruit, meaning he's not growing, he's a false convert, right? That's what it says. And every branch that bears fruit, he proves. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. True believers, as it says there, will bear more fruit. Meaning they will grow, right? Well, in what way? In what way will they grow? What did Jesus have in mind? Ah, in obeying his commandments. Ah, great. But which commandment did he have in mind when he said this passage? Which commandment? Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And just in case, because these disciples were knuckleheads, that they had no idea and they were always slow. Jesus repeats himself again in verse 17. This I command you. That you love one another. This is why Jesus says in John 13 verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for the world. If you stop getting drunk. No. If If you love singing spiritual songs, if you love reading the Bible, no. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
for one another. In fact, it's not just that the world will know that we are truly saved when we have love for one another. John, in 1 John 3.14, he says, we too know, we know, the Christians know, that we have passed out of death into life because what? We constantly, continuously, in the present tense, love for one another. Love the brethren, he says. Love the brethren. How do we know we pass from death into life? Not because we do good deeds. We help, we help old ladies to cross the road. Every time we say an old lady, we help her to cross the road. Therefore, I'm a true convert. No. You know that. When you have true love for one another. Not because we grow in our love for our wives. But because we grow in our life for Jesus' bride. It is not because we have now love and we're growing in that love for our fleshly family. But because we are growing in our love for Jesus' family. This is what the Bible says. Oh, but, uh, but I'm making such a progress in loving my family. I'm happy for you. We all ought to cheer you on. You should grow in your love for your family. But let me tell you something. Even false converts can do the same. Yes, there are marital conflicts. Yes, there are parental challenges. But it's quite normal for unbelievers in their even natural state to grow in their love towards their family, in their sacrificial love for their family. That would even die for their family. You don't need the new nature to do this. You don't. You being evil, give good gifts to your children, the Bible says. It's quite normal that a father, when he has a baby now, he loves him, but five years later, he loves him even more. That's quite natural. False converts, they claim that they love Christians. But what happens when brothers offend them? Yes, they would say, oh, I'm not offended. Of course they have to say that because um, their ego would not allow them to admit that they got offended. Right? Let's just be honest. But because they don't have supernatural power of God to forgive, watch how they respond to this brother that offended them. Watch. There is no interest for biblical reconciliation. What for? No increasing in long-suffering for him. No bearing of joy or kindness towards that brother. No, on the contrary, what do they do? Sever. Sever themselves off. They slowly cut themselves off, that brother in Christ. They follow the motto of the world, what it says. You know, where it says, uh, you, um, what is it? You offend me? Shame, shame on you or something? No, no, you, you, what do you, what do you do? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. What does that mean? Keep a distance, man. They start high when they join the brethren. 
by give them time and some interaction with the brothers that disagree with them. And then they end up solo. And Christians around them, they ask, what's wrong, man? Why is he like this? Why is he withdrawn all the time? He wasn't like this before. Once upon a time, he used to show love for the body. What happened now? I'll tell you what happened. What he used to have was a counterfeit love, a facade. How do we know that? Because the love that Christ gives in a new nature is an ever-growing love. It is not an ever-diminishing love. False converts, you give them just enough time. And at best, they love to sit at the outskirts of the body of Christ. I'm not talking physically, so I'm not talking about those who are sitting at the back. Figuratively speaking, okay? Over time, their backs are stuck to the fence of the sheepfold. They say that they love the church, but their affections towards their body is on the decline. They never share their weaknesses and the struggles so that they would get encouraged by their brothers, nor do they share their victories so they would be edified by the brothers. They're quite content to settle for the bare minimum of their counterfeit version of love. And all the while, they're too busy pursuing the materialistic gain of this world or hanging out with those people of the world. And when they're asked, why are you not deepening your interaction with the brethren? They pull out the, the card. You know it. You know that card that they pull out. I'm not sinning, am I? Of course you're not. You're not sinning. But you're not growing either, are you? So how are you showing evidence that you're not a false convert? How are you not so troubled in your heart that you may be just like Judas? who's ever grown in bitterness towards Christ and the apostles. Not so with true believers. A true believer, because his new nature is attracted to Christ and his love for God is ever growing. Then he begins to love especially whom God loves, whom Christ died for. Yes, of course, he loves his own family. But he knows, he knows, and he says, Jesus didn't die, he didn't shed his blood for my family, but for Jesus' family. Jesus didn't die for my wife, he died for his bride, the church. And so even though he's offended by a brother, and yes, he stumbles and he falls, but something in him is unsettled. The Spirit is convicting him. His new nature is violated. He tries to forget about it like the world does. But he realizes he can't worship God in spirit and in truth. He's got to resolve this. So he eventually wipes the dust. He gets up. He tries to reconcile. And not just to reconcile, but he goes hard to see how he can grow in his joy for his brothers. Had a grown long-suffering, in patience for his weaker brother. The spirit in him constantly 
gives him this undiminishing power to draw ever nearer to his brothers, to encourage them, to exhort them, to edify them. This is very important. Brothers, we cannot claim that we are growing our love for the Lord, the head, if we are not growing in our love for the body, which is attached to that same head. We cannot grow in our love for the bridegroom and yet not draw ever nearer to the bride. So let me ask you, are you growing in your love for your brothers? Do you love the people of God today more than two years ago whenever you said that you became a Christian? Don't kid yourself. I plead with you, don't harden your heart when you hear this. And what does this growing in love looks like? How do we apply this? Well, we come to the third point. We come to the third point. Serving. Serving. Real practical serving. Not talking being here on a stage. Well, only. But you've got to learn to serve the brethren. James 1.22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's all over the scripture. Jonathan Edwards says, this is the crown of all the previous things that we just spoke about. I'm paraphrasing. If we are indeed growing in our love for Jesus, then shouldn't we be burning with desire to serve him more? Now how? How do we do this? How do we serve Jesus who does not really need our service. Where is Jesus now, physically speaking? He's in heaven. He's enthroned in heaven, right? I get this. You ready? Where is his body? Here on earth. His body is here on earth. Now one more question. What is the condition of his body? Part of his body is battered and bruised. It needs encouragement. Part of Jesus' body is financially poor. And another part needs counseling. And yet another needs teaching and comfort, admonition, exhortation. And it's a lot of cleaning up. We're sinners saved by grace. And we're always ever growing to realize how weak we are. How do we serve Jesus who does not need our service? in such a way that gives us evidence that we are truly saved, let us hear it from Jesus' lips. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us how we can serve him who does not need our service. And in verse 34, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, splitting the guards from the sheep, Puts the sheep on his right side. Goats are on the left. And he looks on the right. And he says to them, those who are on his right, Come, you are blessed, blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? 
For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Ah, Jesus is preaching. We've got to be like Mother Teresa, right? No. It's not about social gospel. Let's pay careful attention to what Jesus says. All right. Well, the righteous, true converted people that will answer him, Lord. When did we see you hungry? In other words, it wasn't that they were doing it in order to believe that they were saved. It's not only so far so they can be assured that they are saved. They were actually doing it and they love doing it and they love to do it more because of the new nature. And then they say, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you? Here's a statement. (laughs) Sick. Or in prison and come to you. And Jesus says, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. The least. Just move your head over, Peter the Apostle. John the Baptist, just, 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 I need to point to the least who's standing there at the very right side of Jesus, the weakest brother, perhaps the thief on the cross who just barely escaped hell and entered into heaven. And he points to that man, this woman, the weakest because he belongs to him. And he says, if you did it to this man, did it to me. When you want to place your lives at Jesus' feet, how do you do that when he's in heaven? Do you just say it? Do you just feel it? What do we do? It's simple. It is to place your lives at the feet of his body. How? By serving them. By washing their feet as Jesus told us to do, right? By lifting them up. Brothers, Jesus said, I will build my church. And he said he died for his church. He purchased the church with his blood. That's why it's so important to understand limited atonement. Or else you just go abstract and just love anybody the same way. Since Jesus died for everybody. He purchased the church with his blood. How can we claim that we are devoted to Jesus if we're not devoted to the very thing that Jesus is devoted to? Again, I know I used this illustration very quickly, but we know that the Bible gives us this beautiful picture of this new wedded couple, right? Where Christ is a bridegroom and the church is his bride. And at any wedding, you cannot exalt the bridegroom and yet not exalt his bride. 
You, you cannot do that. People clap with both hands. You, you can't do this. Right? What do you think the bridegroom Christ, the king, would think of one who would say to him, Oh, King Jesus, I love you. I dedicate my life to you, but I'm somewhat indifferent towards your bride. I, I neglect her needs. I, I shut my heart to her cries. I keep my goods to myself and, and, and reserve my energy to myself and to my family that you gave me. I guess I'm growing in my holiness and I devote my life to you. How do you think Jesus would respond when you neglect his bride? What is it that sets apart true converts from false ones? Here are three points again. Number one, they grow in the love for Jesus. Emphasis, growth. And that must be reflected in the growth for the church, the body of Jesus, the body. I love my wife. I love my kids. You have no idea how much I love them, but they're not the body of Jesus. Okay? And how do I, how do we love the body of Jesus? By serving them. Now, conclusion. Let me just bring a bit of balance because we can be overstretched and misunderstand what we're saying here. Failing to meet the standards that we just presented to you today from the scripture does not mean necessarily that you're not saved, okay? It means that you have no biblical ground for you to enjoy your assurance of your salvation. For Jesus to save you is one thing, but to be sure that you are saved is another. We need to understand this. Your salvation is a precious jewel. It's a precious jewel and it is given to the elect. It's only the elect that are saved, right? But the assurance of salvation is a privilege to enjoy, enjoy what God has already done for you. To fail the test, it is not necessarily, it does not necessarily mean that you don't have this precious jewel. You may, you may not. No one will know. But it means that you have no biblical warrant to enjoy it since you don't have that assurance whether your sins are forgiven or not. What does that mean? This is what it means. There is searching for, for us to do if we fail this test, if we're not grown. And that's biblically true. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1.10, it says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. There's hard work to be done. We've got to roll up our sleeves. There is repentance to do. There is more crucifying the flesh. There is more of denying yourself and carrying the cross, more of following Jesus. And as you're beholding him more, and if you see yourself transformed more, and the more you're consistent with the scripture, 
the more you will find evidence that you're saved. Yes, it is hard work. Brothers, sisters, friends, everyone in this room, we need to understand something absolutely clear. Justification is free. It is by grace. You are saved, not of your works. But assurance of your salvation demands hard work done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, when a first, when a person first is born again, we praise God and we thank God and we say, great man. Let's see how you're going. Let's see. Are you growing in your love for Jesus? Are you constantly in love with him? Are you battling against your flesh and opening the word so that you can find Jesus? And if it is the true Jesus, not the Jehovah's Mormon, Jehovah's Witness Jesus, or the Mormon's Jesus, or the Muslim, the real Jesus of the Bible, if it is the true Jesus of the Bible, and your eyes are more open to him, the more you will see his heart beating with love for his bride. And if you truly grow in your love for Jesus, and you see his heart beating with love for his bride, guess the natural inclination of your new nature is. as battered, as bruised, as weak, sheep, slow to learn. But you can meet, you grow in your love for them and you want to serve them. And your hearts ache when they walk away, when they, when they backslide. And you rejoice when they jump out again and they continue walking with God. And you go and you fellowship with them. And in your heart and in your mind, there is this intentionality saying to yourself, Man, how can I serve this brother? And your love will ever grow. You will never find yourself stuck at the back seat of the sheepfold, figuratively speaking. You will endeavor to run forward. False converts, you know what they do? We say to them, man, we're called to run the race. You know what they say? Yes, of course, we've got to run the race. But they're quite content to go last. And he said, why, why are you running slow? Why don't you just come, man? Move forward, man. Run the race. Win the prize. They pulled the card. I'm not sinning, am I? As if Christianity is a legal system. Do's and don'ts. You must not sin. Full stop. They summarize the entire Christianity in this sentence, in this command. You must not sin. And so long as I'm not sinning and you're crying out to me to run faster and harder, you're legalistic. Brothers, I submit to you. This is exactly what Judas Iscariot was. I pray that we put our trust in Jesus Christ, laying hold on to Jesus Christ, Throwing ourselves on that rock at the feet of the cross, believing with all of our hearts that Jesus Christ alone is able to satisfy God's demands. Receive forgiveness of sins by believing in Jesus. And not only receive the forgiveness of sins, 
but the perfect righteousness of Jesus that he would give to everyone that would come to him. And from this point onwards, we don't play games with God. We don't justify our reasons as to why we're not running the race harder and harder. We lay everything, weaknesses and strength, at the feet of Christ and we run the race. Setting our hope fully on His coming. Amen. It's a hard message. Let us examine ourselves for our sakes, for the sake of our families, for the sake of our eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Look, God, we pray that you would bring understanding. We pray that as a seed is sown into the ground, that the, that the birds of the air would not come and snatch these words away. We pray, Lord, that we would not just fight trying to wrestle and wiggle ourselves out of testing ourselves whether we are truly in the faith. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace, the, the boldness, the courage that comes from you to test ourselves. And if we are, find ourselves um, fallen before, below the mark, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the Holy Spirit to convict us and to draw us to Christ. If we are born again believers and yet because of some habitual sin that staled our growth, that we would shake it off by the power of your Holy Spirit. And if we are not saved, Lord, we beg you, save souls. Jesus saves. This day, today, this very moment, Lord God, we pray if there are any false converts among us, that you come with the power of your Holy Spirit. Convert them. Regenerate them. Save them, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.